and welcome to the Life on This Podcast. It's me, Sanderson, and today we are interviewing Judy P. Atkus, who is a legendary publisher and was at the forefront of creating the personal development publishing space in the UK. Her publishing house, which she founded in 1979, has sold millions of books and then ended up being bought by Hachette. So she's also a super successful entrepreneur and business leader. And we really wanted to interview her because she was the UK publisher for John Kabat-Zinn. She published the first mindfulness book in the UK. And as you can probably guess, the Lifefulness Project is really inspired by how mindfulness developed. And, you know, what did she do? What did John Kabat-Zinn do to enable this idea of mindfulness, adapting Buddhist meditation in a way that everyone can do it? Uh, to spread all over the world, because here on the Life on This podcast, podcast, uh, we're really dedicated to spreading the idea that you can have congregations or spiritual communities in a way that everyone can take part. So that's why we're so excited to interview her. And yeah, this conversation was really fun. Uh, if you like what you hear about lifefulness and all that we do, you can go and join the community and you can find all the details in the podcast notes. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you meet Judy Piatkus. Anyway, it's recorded. So, um, you know, change anything. Well, oh, well, <laughs> Well, I think that is a great place for us to start. Uh, so it's me, Sanderson, uh, my co-host, James. How's it going, James? It's going great. Thank you. It's great to be with you again, Sanderson. Uh, that's nice to hear. And then we have Judy Piatkus, who is a legendary publisher. And we are so pleased to get Judy here because Judy's publishing you, you had a company that was named after yourself, Piatkus Publishing, and you've been at the forefront of personal development of self-development publishing and uh, published John Kabat-Zinn's work in the UK. And we look to mindfulness so much for inspiration that we're so pleased to have you here. Judy, uh, how are you today? Well, I'm thrilled to be here. My favourite topic of conversation is always personal development. So I'm really looking forward to connecting. Oh, that is good to hear. And the question that we ask, we've got two questions that we ask our uh, guests uh, every time. And the first one is, what was the religious, spiritual or philosophical background uh, to your childhood? Well, I um, grew up in London, um, in England. Um, and my background is that I'm Jewish. And I grew up in a traditional Jewish household, um, which to different people can mean a lot of different things. But in my particular case, I went to the synagogue every week and uh, we uh, had a kosher home. And, um, and I was really interested in my Jewish heritage and studied at Sunday school for, a for quite a long time after most of the other girls had left. And, and I think I must have, um, been very attracted to what I was learning because we learned the ancient classical Hebrew language. Um, and I subsequently went on to um, take an examination to teach Sunday school when I was 16. What was it that drew you to it? Well, 
well, I, I think now um, that I must have come into this world and have felt connected to the ancient Hebrew language, which is, um, when looked at from the mystical point of view, very powerful. But of course, as a young woman, I knew nothing about that. I just loved learning Hebrew. And then what's one lesson that you think uh, our increasingly secular world could learn from uh, religion? Well, religion is a wonderful framework for community. And religion teaches us many wonderful lessons. When you listen to um, a rabbi, a priest, anyone who's learned and has studied, while you may not wish to agree with everything that they're saying, there are always nuggets of truth that everybody can benefit from in their own particular lives. For uh, our listeners, it'd be great to go and have a few to give us some potted history of your, uh, how you went to like having your own uh, a publishing imprint, which was so successful and having your own uh, your name uh, above it. Uh, the uh, I actually have one little uh, uh, sort of Judy Piatka's publishing fact, which I'm trying to work out whether I should share or not. James knows what it is. Oh, you uh, definitely you must share it. I love oh, it when really? people have oh, I'm not sure oh, about it. that. Okay. Oh, if you sent us a book and it was rejected, I've heard that <laughs> one many times. Oh no! You have to understand, Sanderson is a comedian by training and by background <laughs> comedian. So when he says this, this is a sort of podcast you're on. Well, okay? I mean, yeah, we, we we don't we don't want it to be an airy fairy personal development thing. I'm just going to say that as a teenage boy, I had access to Daniel Steele novels and I enjoyed them thoroughly in the privacy of my own bedroom and feel that I know more about Daniel Steele characters than most men out there. There have been some well-thumbed pages of some Piatkus novels that I've read. Oh, I love that story. I love it. I love it. That is truly unique. Really? Oh, well, look here. We're getting off to a great start. Uh, James, I was halfway asking through uh, Judy to give a potted history. I'm going to hand it over to you whilst I realise some sort of circle has been achieved and mystical union uh, is happening soon. The rapture will happen by the end of this podcast. <laughs> oh well I haven't I have I have another treat in store for your listeners which people really seem to like and I'll get to it in a minute. Oh it's treat central this podcast. Well you know when you mentioned you were a comedian it gave me a license to be a funny woman so okay. <laughs> I left school and I didn't go to university and that was partly because I was spending too much time partying so um all my i was i i i i didn't go i wasn't meant to go obviously so um all my friends packed their bags went off to university in different parts of england and i had to go and learn typing and in those days i also had to learn something called shorthand which was how to write words very very fast and while i'm saying this i'm just thinking how nobody talks about shorthand nowadays um, and then I got a job in a publishing company and I worked in two or three different companies. And then I decided to be a literary agent. Um, and while I was working in the literary agency, uh, I was still pretty much at the bottom of the pile. Um, but I was enthusiastic and keen and pleasant. And 
I was given the opportunity to comb through the backlist of this literary agent. So the literary agent was called David Hyam Associates, very well known in the UK, and it had been established in 1937, and they had many wonderful authors, and they were responsible for selling their books to publishing companies. And if the authors had died, they were responsible for their estate, for the literary heritage that had been left. So I was um, selling some of these old books to um, another company who were reprinting them for libraries. And the young man who worked there and I decided we would go into business and see if we could do that for ourselves. So we set up a company. He, he lived with his parents and I just got married. And we met occasionally, talked on the phone, and we did very well. And after four years, we had an office in London's Bond Street and we were becoming quite successful, but we weren't getting on. So we decided to part, go our separate ways, and I started again on my own. Now you mentioned Piatka's books, the title of the company, and that was because at that time in England, companies were named after the person who founded them. So you could make that choice. And I decided I was gonna put my name out there, um, which I've never regretted, although everybody pronounces it wrong. So um, I was very fortunate because when I started the company, I was offered several books by Danielle Steele to publish in hardback for libraries. But the hardest I was of also offered, I was also offered another author. And some of your listeners are really going to resonate with this author because later on, when my daughter was 14, she came home from school and she said, Mummy, there's a book that I really want you to buy me. All the other girls are reading it. And I said, sure, what is it? I was always buying her books. And she said, it's called Flowers in the Attic by Virginia Andrews. And I said, darling, I published it. Oh. <laughs> now, this may not mean anything to you, but I guarantee a lot of your women listeners who are sitting at home now will go, wow, flowers in the attic. Flowers in the attic. I can, uh, should I tell you what I'm going to say? That one did pass me by. Uh, I mostly <laughs> uh, interacted with Piatka's publishing, which was bought by my stepmother. And if, unless it was embossed with huge gold letters, we're talking your Jackie Collinses. Uh, we're we're talking about your Harold Robbinses. We're talking your Jilly Coopers. All if it if it bonked and it busted, that was what my stepmother read, <laughs> and that was my reading material. But then you also had another line, which is something that we're really interested in, and that is that you were there at the like at the start, really the mindfulness movement, and you published John Kabat-Zinn's first work, and. It is. It would be great for you to really unpack that story. That's going to be the thing we really want to dig into because with the Lifefulness Project, I mean, it, we literally have named it after mindfulness. In literally a, in, stole half the name. Yeah, because uh, what he did was go and take this practice, Vipassana meditation, and then go and describe it in a way that everyone could do it. And it took something from this sort of 
like area sort of marked religious, marked sort of woo, and then was able to translate it in a way which has now gone and helped millions of people. You can bring it into companies, you can get it on the NHS. And that is what we really want to do with the life on this project. But whereas he did it for meditation, our mission is to do it with for congregation. And so I really want to go and dig into this because it is so fascinating to us. So yeah, just go from the top. What was it like to go and uh, receive uh, his his book and uh, read it for the first time? Well, here's an interesting fact for you. In the 1980s, Piatka's books was um, publishing a lot of alternative health. And towards the end of that time, we began to publish books on meditation, um, shamanism, dreams, shiatsu, tai chi. And so we were offered that book because we were creating a range of books um, that were in that subject area. And there were only a few publishers in the UK at the early, at, in the first half of the 90s who were publishing in that area. And we were offered many books. All of us were offered so many books because in America, there were so many books to choose from. And all the publishers were trying to sell us to sell foreign licenses, not just to the UK, but to all the foreign language publishers. And so we would get a steady stream of books all the time. Now, the book came in and it was called Wherever You Go, There You Are. And we read it. And in England, we've always had a tradition of having books that you actually can look at the title and you know immediately what it's about. Whereas in America, the titles can be much more clever or more relating to the book. They don't have to be so specific. And we thought if we sell this book, wherever you go, there you are. No one's quite going to understand it. English book buyers might think, what's that about? I mean, this was so early. I mean, I think the book was published in 1996. In the UK, to have sold a book, which was titled Wherever You Go, There You Are, to booksellers would have been a really big struggle. So we called the first book Mindfulness for Every, my, I think it's Mindfulness for Every Day. And then we were offered full catastrophe living after we'd made a success of the first book. Um, and I don't think that we would have been able to publish Full Catastrophe Living if we hadn't published Mindfulness for Every Day. My, sorry, it's Mindfulness Meditation for Every Day. Yeah, Full Catastrophe Living was, is such a big book. It's around 800 pages. Um, so to take on a massive book of that size and to try to introduce a new idea when the book itself needed to have a high price because it was so thick and long, um, that would have been a challenge, but actually that wasn't the first book we were offered. So that was all really interesting. Um, and then we subsequently published more books by John Kabat-Zinn as he wrote them. Sorry, I was just going to uh, want to ask James, because you are in the business of going and communicating these ideas. And I think sometimes on the podcast of like ideas about personal development, ideas which can sometimes seem uh, a bit obtruse, maybe not relevant to everyday life. What does that make you think? Like when you go in here, you know, this, this like real clarity of just saying it's got to be applicable to every everyday life. Like, how do you go and think about that? It's something that comes up a lot 
in our work and our community, both when I'm trying to convey the ideas that I want to convey to our members and to the visitors who come or to whoever's watching us talk about this stuff, but also when we invite outside speakers and think, do they have the skill to convey this idea in a way that people who've never heard of it will understand, who've never had a training in their particular academic area? We have a little rule now. So it's kind of a soft rule. We, we break it occasionally, but we don't invite academics anymore <laughs> because so often they can't speak to an audience that doesn't have the intellectual background and training that they don't have. And it, it's very off-putting. People feel stupid or they feel like they're being talked down to um, because they don't, they don't have that skill. So I think it's so fascinating, Judy, when you talked about you get this book, it's got a very evocative title. I love the evocative title. It speaks to me something about it. But you realize that in the context where you were working, it wouldn't work to communicate the brilliant ideas in the book. And so uh, it seems to be something that is you've done repeatedly in your career is taking the ideas of some nonfiction authors who are not necessarily well known in a particular market, like in the UK, and finding a way to help them communicate to that market. Is that a fair way to talk about what you've done? That's very kind. Um, yes, we have always tried to make these ideas accessible so that everybody could read and understand the books that we published. Um, and I do have to mention here for any listeners who are not so familiar with Piatka's books that I did sell the company in 2007. Um, and although Piatka's books continues to publish wonderful books and especially on mindfulness, um, it's no longer owned by me. Um, so I'm not responsible for anything you might see in the shops this week <laughs> that is brand new. Um, but oh, but hold on. We have to see what's being published today. No, 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 no that's <laughs> nothing. So you said that in a way where I just no. instantly thought Piatka's books has absolutely dropped a bomb and uh, <laughs> you were trying to distance no. yourself. No, 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 no. no, no. no. Okay. Piatka's books had three books in this week's Sunday Times bestseller list in, in the Sunday Times. That's and amazing. I thought, wow, that is amazing. And I just felt so proud um, that I'd left a legacy. Um, so no, no, no. What I meant was I couldn't take credit for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at me there being a negative ninny. Uh, and uh, and so yeah, we've like as uh, James said, there's you've taken these ideas, you've gone and popularized them. Why do you think that sort of really went mainstream in a way that maybe other meditation books didn't? Um, I think the British public were ready for it. Um, because I remember we, we, our first printing was 3,000 copies. Um, and, and, and what's really relevant here is that um, the world had not yet been introduced to Amazon. I don't think it existed then. And it certainly wasn't doing what it's doing now. So um, people in England went and bought their books from bookshops. So therefore, at that time, you could give a book a different title. But as book publishing became more global at the turn of the century and books in America or in England were coming out at the same time and being sold online, then you had to keep the same title. Um, so we could, we, we could um, make something seem much simpler then, um, whereas it subsequently became much more difficult. Um, and I think we were interested in this area because we loved reading it ourselves. 
because it's really difficult to be a publisher in the mind, body and spirit and personal development area if you don't enjoy the books and learn from them. Because there are so many written and there are so many um, great teachers out there. Um, how would you know if a book had something special if you weren't reading lots of books by other people all the time? Um, but I do think in publishing that if, if an editor works in a particular area, it is because they love that area and they become an expert in that area and they just want to read other, other publishers' books in that area. Um, so um, it looks like this has, this has turned out to be my purpose in life. Although at the time, we didn't talk about purpose all the time, which was truly wonderful. And, um, and if you'd asked me what my purpose was, I would have said it's to publish books that inspire and inform and entertain. You've clearly done that. And it's, it's an amazing, as you said, you called it a legacy. I mean, my goodness, you're still going and doing amazing things. And yet you've achieved all this stuff already. It's kind of fantastic. I, I wonder, one of the things that came across to me in some of the interviews about your work that I looked at was that... I don't know exactly how to express this, so please correct me if I'm wrong about it, but it seems like, you, firstly, you have a passion for the books that you published, right? You really liked reading them and you wanted to get them out to a bigger audience. But secondly, it seems like you didn't much mind what the broader culture thought about them. Like that, I saw an interview where people talked about how maybe the romance novels that you were initially publishing, for instance, were not considered very highbrow in the UK at the time, but you published them. And maybe at the time you were doing some of the self-development stuff, that it, there wasn't really such a big market for that in the UK. And maybe people thought it was a bit fringe or a bit unusual, but you published it so that you, it seems like you're not snobbish about books. If you feel like it's a good story or there's a good idea, you're willing to go for it. Is that is that right? Oh, absolutely, definitely. And ironically, my inability to get into university at the age of 18 probably helped that. I wasn't even that good at English at school. So I can, I can write perfectly good English, but I didn't get on with the English literature teacher very well. And I never did very well in the subject. Um, but I, I, but I was, always passionate about what we were publishing um, and I have to say you know there's two kinds of publishers and um, there's the creative publisher and then sometimes there's the person who runs the company who's more um, financially based more strategic more structured um, and I just happen to be lucky because I'm right-brained and left-brained. And some people are very right-brained, very creative. Some people are very left-brained, very structured. Um, and and um, as I've already expressed to you, <laughs> technology's never been my thing, um, but I can understand the value of it and what it does. Um, so I think I was just very fortunate. But I, I think I, I, I came into this world and, and what I was here to do was to open people's minds to new ways of thinking. So that was my purpose. But I would not have understood that in my 40s. I think I had to get to my 50s before I appreciated that. So on the topic of purpose, which usually comes up, um, I would like to say to everybody, don't worry about it. It'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll reveal itself during the course of your life. 
Um, I, I do think there's too much emphasis on people finding their purpose at too young an age. And all it does is give everybody a headache. <laughs> I love that. You now go and speak in companies about leadership, and that's a big uh, a part of your uh, your post uh, post exit uh, sort of life after you uh, sold your company. Uh, what does that mean to you? This idea of purpose in business. What does conscious leadership, uh, you know, look like? First of all, there's the word conscious, which means that a person has a certain level of awareness of what is going on around them in that they are aware of the bigger picture, not just the micro picture that surrounds the details of every day. For me, being a leader was about leading from the front and it was about not expecting anybody to do anything that I personally wouldn't want to be asked to do. I'm not talking here about making the coffee, which I didn't have a problem with anyway, um, but I'm talking about the fact that you have to work with people all day and you have to treat them the way that you would like to be treated. And that when you're in a company, everybody's very aware of how the people at the top of the company are acting. And you have to walk your talk every minute of every day. But I cannot, I cannot actually say that I did that at the start of my career because I wasn't that old and I didn't know enough. But certainly I was much more aware of that when we began to publish business books. Um, so conscious leadership is about being aware of your actions, how they might impact on other people. And from the point of view of leading an entrepreneurial organization, it's about taking into account or first of all, this, the quality and, and the authenticity of the service or the product you're offering, and then looking at how everybody, the staff, the shareholders, the stakeholders, all the people you're dealing with and the planet are going to benefit. I've said that explanation of what conscious means uh, is uh, in terms of leadership really helped because I, I've got a sort of general understanding. I've got friends who are in terms of conscious capitalism and want to have conscious companies and various other things. And you put it so simply, it's about being conscious, you know, it's about being aware. And obviously the what you're aware of, and you know, the different realities you you might go and sort of use to inform uh, what that might be, because I'm sure some people take it from it from all manner of different spiritual traditions. Uh, yeah, but just simply like developing that real sense of awareness. Uh, James, were there any things which resonated with you in that? Like so much. I mean, you, you said, Judy, it was going to be a big idea to kind of to bottle down. We did a great job with it. I just think uh, obviously treating people like you want to be treated is a central teaching in many different traditions and life paths. And it's important to think about that as a leader. I wonder whether you could say something about in the area of leadership, a lot of people who lead organizations have had a really challenging time, right? Over the past 14 months, we've been hit with, at least speaking for myself, challenges that I never expected to deal with. I never expected I would have to, as a leader of a congregation, make potentially life or death decisions about whether we keep our building open and how long, and how many people are allowed to come in. 
So do you have something to say about when you really have kind of a crisis moment, how does this form of leadership come in? When, well, I think change is very difficult. Change is always difficult because most people don't want to make changes. Many people are very frightened. And so what you're talking about is not just that you were challenged to make changes within your organization, but at the same time, everybody you were working with was being challenged because every aspect of their daily lives was different. And there was a massive fear factor. And I have not really led an organization in that position during the last couple of years. But what I do think is that as a leader, you have to lead from the front. You may show your vulnerability, but you do have to overcome your own fear so that people feel comfortable that they can trust in your leadership. So I might say, right, well, we're in a really difficult, challenging position. and we are going to have to make very many difficult decisions and not everybody is going to be happy with the decisions that we're going to have to make, but we are going to work together and we're going to look for the decisions that we hope will be the best decisions for as many people as possible. I think that's very valuable. That That's helpful to me, actually, in the sense that, that one of the challenges is always how much vulnerability do you show? And how much of your own internal thought process do you show people? And how much do you say, actually, you know, yes, this is complicated. Yes, there's many different ways that we could go, but this is the way we are going to go. And here's why. And particularly when we're making decisions about being closed, being open, how many people are allowed in, all this stuff. I have a certain amount of anxiety that I'm wrestling with because I don't want to make the wrong decision. Uh, and... I don't want to harm my institution or a member of it because I made the wrong decision. And so you can let people in a little bit into your kind of internal world as you do things, because that helps, I think, them get to know you and trust you more and appreciate you understand the complexity. But you can't let people see everything. So hopefully no members of my congregation will listen to this podcast because we're pulling back the curtain on leadership here. I think that's something which I had to learn at Sunday Assembly when sort of creating it and being like, okay, this can be a place where I will be able to go and bring my problems in the same way that I might to a community that I was a sort of a member of, that I was a, a participant in. And in fact, you've, you've got to know that there's got to be a, there's got to be that distance between you as well. You can go and be doesn't mean that you're being inauthentic, but it does mean that you're just being aware of how much impact, you know, your every actions have, like they are being looked at, they are, you know, they've got, they, they weigh more heavily on everyone. But uh, at Piatka's books, you really developed a very different culture, which has gone in, on into your work. And it'd be great to like go and sort of share more about like how these ideas actually, like what do they actually look like like in a, in a functioning company? Well, some of, some of the things we did were really way ahead of their time, um, which is a bit one of the reasons why the book's called Ahead of Her Time, the book I've just written. Um, and so, and, and it was actually because I hadn't held a position of responsibility 
in a larger organization because from the age of 24 I set up my company with my partner my first company and then at 29 I set up Piatka's books so I had not really thought too much about leadership and running companies before I um, was my own boss so to speak so things we did included um, we were giving paternity leave um, we were we were always giving the same holidays um, I always think that's a tough one for Americans because I don't think Americans get enough holidays and in the UK people get four weeks although we don't have public days um, so we were always giving the same holidays that everybody else was giving um, which is which not every company was do you and mean, I mean what, paternity leave um, well we began we were give we gave paternity leave well it took a while before um, we had any men in the company who became fathers <laughs> actually um, but we started off with a week and I, I think it's two weeks now um, I'm not sure what it is now um, but we started well, no, we did have men working in the company. It just took a while before um, they, they became fathers because not all of them um, were fathers. Not all of them had children after, after they joined us. Um, and then we had flexi time. So um, one of our early assistants used to come in at seven in the morning and go at two after lunch. And then the production director, he came in at eight and went at four. And then we were small enough that we would always try to organize our sales meetings around the times that our sales director was actually in the building because we always felt it would be most valuable to everybody if she was actually in the meeting. So we were very flexible around that. Um, just trying to think what else we did. And we, we, had, we had office meetings and we tried to be really open um, so that people had the opportunity to say if they weren't happy with something or if they thought we could improve. Um, we have one period after we began to publish business books. Um, well, I think I was reading um, books about lean, lean business and six, 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 six sigma. And I, and you know, we were a fairly small organization, but I encouraged everybody um, to sort of sit with people in different departments so that everybody understood how their specific work impacted on the department that gave it to them or the department they were passing it on to. And then we had a period when we, when we said to people, you know, if you want to do an extra training course of any kind, if you think it's going to benefit both yourself and the company, we'll pay for you. And not very many people took that offer up, although it was very generous. I'm talking about the 90s here, whereas now anybody listening to this who's in the workplace and is in their 20s is going to think, oh, I'd grab it because it's a, there's just such a totally different attitude. Um, because people going into the workplace now really recognize how they need to be improving their skills all the time. But of course, the workplace 25 years ago was simpler. So everybody could understand in words of simple language, certainly in our publishing company, what everybody else was doing. Whereas now each department in an organization is much more based on technology and much more sophisticated. And it is harder to understand what the person sitting at the desk next to you is doing. One thing that really strikes me there is exactly that point you made, that there's going to be a lot of people who one would say, this is what I want in my workplace today. But also a lot of this stuff has now become 
you know, standard, like this idea of flexi time. Well, now, and we're in this huge remote working experiment where the entire office culture has sort of jumped forward 10 years into the future in one fell swoop. Uh, yeah, it makes me think like, what are the things which now are the sort of, you know, the ideas which are at the edge of the workplace, which will, you know, start to go and, uh, you know, end up being the thing which people don't take for granted in, uh, you know, 25 years time, whatever it might be. Hmm. Push that lifefulness agenda a bit. Well, a few years ago, um, I was quoting from a Gallup poll survey, and I think only 13 or 15% of people in the workplace who were surveyed uh, were happy. Now, if you're a company and more than 80% of your staff are not very happy coming to work in your organization, you are not going to be very productive. So you can push everybody as much as you want and they will, they will do their best, but at the same time, it, they will also be having a go and you won't always know what they're getting up to because they won't like the organization or the people who run it enough to really give of their best, honestly and authentically. So it's the most important, I always felt the most important thing was that people in your organization should look forward to coming to work because they are gonna give their best. Because we all want to work. We've all come in with talents and we all want to use them the best way we can. And if we're not doing that, we might wanna think, is it about the company? Is it about my boss? Or is it that maybe I really should be doing something else with my life? So going forward, we're at an incredible time because we, we as a society can say, what kind of world do we want? And we do have to recognize that we won't be in the phrase going back to normal. It's not going to happen. We are gonna be living differently. And so companies have got to really find out what is going to make their staff most happy and most productive at the same time. And it might not be easy for a while because people are going to have to experiment. So leaders are going to have to say to their staff, look, we're going to try it, whatever it is, three days a week at home, two days a week at home, um, commuting, living in different countries, all these things. People are going to have to say, we'll try it. And we all need to recognize that we can't know at the start what is going to be the best solution. And we're going to have to live with the uncertainty because what works for one person may not work for another. And we're going to have to find what works for the majority. I think what you're saying is absolutely fascinating and particularly just to speak totally selfishly because I am writing a talk for my community on Sunday all about how the world might change after COVID, right? And what we, how we can try and use the disruption or the sort of pause to our everyday that has happened over the 14 months to think about what's really important to us and how we really want to live. And I can totally see how with your interest in personal development, you know, this is try and making an opportunity out of something that's really been horrible in many ways, but trying to find how we can use that break in our everyday life to think carefully about what we want to keep and what we want to change. So I'm totally with you. 
I just wonder, do you think that's going to happen? Or do you think that everyone's just going to be like, oh, we've woken up from the nightmare party time. Let's let's go wild. I worry that people are just going to be like, thank goodness that's over. I never want to think about it again and nothing will change. Um, well, I think everything's going to change. Um, and the reason we're not going to be able to get it right in the next 12 or 24 months is because at the same time as we're thinking about changing our offices, changing how we get to work, changing the fares, you know, what are we gonna pay to get to work? What We will be thinking about the big picture and that is climate change. So we've got the impact of climate change and all the changes that we would have to be making anyway. So um, I'm living in London, I live in, um, in a place which is not very, is six or seven miles from the center of London. Now from this autumn, if you have a diesel car, you are gonna pay approximately um, 11 pounds. So that's probably about 15, $16. Every time you drive your car out your front door. Um, and that is um, so that we can um, bring down the pollution. Now, this is just London, this is just one city, but all over the planet, people are gonna have to pay attention to climate change because we have to do something about it. We have no choice and we are just at the tipping point. And if we don't do something about it, we know um, that the planet is gonna be destroyed. Countries are, are gonna be drowning as the sea levels rise. So while we might be talking about the impact of COVID, it is still too early to know about all the changes that are also going to impact all of us on a daily basis because of climate change. So we've just got to sit with uncertainty for a while. And that's really difficult for most human beings. I'm, so I was I had a question that I wanted to ask you. And then what you ended with by saying just made it even more pertinent is that you are you are talking about these big systemic issues, climate change, you know, how this has got going to affect everyone, thinking about it from a diesel like uh, regulation point of view and connecting it to sea level rises. And yeah, I reckon in your lifetime, you have had uh, conversations where people have told you, oh, well, this personal development is very uh, solipsistic, it's very inward looking, it's all about the individual. But there you go, you said that, we have to live with uncertainty and that is very hard and we have to do that if we want to solve this problem so what is your defense of how personal change links to social change and by the way i do want to reassure you whilst also giving you some time to think that uh, this is not me saying that and I'm, I'm i'm mr personal change links to social change guy but i'm pretty sure that you've got some uh, good answers in this area what's really important is to understand ourselves. So who are you? Who, who am I? Um, what are my needs? What are my good points? What is my shadow side? Um, what are my faults? Because the more understanding you have of your own personality, the more emotional mastery um, that you can achieve, then the more peace of mind you're going to have. So when you have, when any individual has peace of mind, 
then you are able to make life much easier for the people around you. So the more people who can raise their consciousness levels and they can um, achieve greater peace of mind. I mean, very few of us have it all the time. I think just the very great spiritual teachers um, really have it all the time. It's very hard not to get frustrated every now and again by what's going on around you. Um, but when you have an understanding of what triggers your anger, what triggers your pain, what triggers your heartache, um, why did you just feel you've got to go to the fridge and get some ice cream, you know, why have you just opened the cupboard and drunk half a bottle of whiskey, when you understand what's going on and why you're doing that, and you seek some help so that you understand yourself better, then you're able to contribute into society um, and you offer so much more to everybody. So the more of us who understand ourselves, the more peaceful society is and the more we're able to make better decisions. And, and I do also think that this is so much easier when you have some spiritual tools because spiritual tools, and they vary for every individual, can really help you during a period of uncertainty and fear. You mentioned uh, ice cream and whiskey, and uh, it made me want to have ice cream and whiskey. And then you made mention spiritual tools, and it made me want to have more spiritual tools. But I also saw James James's eyes perk up at the mention of the old uh, STs. I, I was wondering, Judy, if you could let us know what some of those spiritual tools are that you use. And have you ever picked up something from one of the books you published? Like, have, have you ever used any of that stuff? Or, but what do you use? Is, is that is that a joke? Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, well, um, I probably read some kind of spiritual article every day, actually, and that's just to keep my mind on track. Um, I mean, I'm older, um, so I have had the great gift of a lifetime of spiritual books arriving on my desk every day and I've met amazing wonderful authors some of whom are great teachers I've been to their workshops I've spent time in conversation with them um, so I um, I have a belief um, of a higher consciousness and we all have different words for that um, and, and that the divine whatever you, your divine might be, the divine is within me. Um, and here I am in the world, just trying to do my best and walk lightly through life. So I can say that, you see, because you told me that you're allowed to laugh on this program. <laughs> that is for sure the uh, thing. And so but what are some of the spiritual teachers who you have been uh, in contact with who've most marked you? Um, well, I think it's more, um, I think it's more books, really. Um, so I remember reading, um, well, of course, I mean, I, I grew up in the Jewish community. Um, so I grew up with um, ideas from Judaica. Um, so um, that obviously really impacted on me. Um, and, and I, and I, and I recognise the value of community from that. Um, but it was also somewhat difficult for me um, because I struggled with some aspects of Judaism. Um, it is 
like other religions, very patriarchal. Um, and I, um, I also found myself fascinated by reincarnation, um, which is not to say that if you studied Jewish mystical teachings, you might not find um, a lot about that, depending which rabbi you were studying. Um, but I have become a believer in reincarnation because that makes a lot of sense to me. And of course, other religions um, speak about reincarnation much more than Judeo-Christian ones. Um, so, so believing that we're all a soul, having the opportunity for many lifetimes on this planet, um, I always find that very interesting because for me, it explains so much of the inequality and the unfairness. Yeah, I will be, truth be told, I'm not that familiar with uh, many Jewish uh, sort of thinkers and teachers. I have dabbled in Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, who I, I love in him the sort of connection between wonder and I think for him is a wonder and justice, which is often something which doesn't necessarily go together in a lot of teachings or like and even in secular society, we tend to think of awe and wonder and peak experiences again as we like really locate them in this individualized sort of view of the world as opposed to being something which can one be done in community but can also go and lead us to want more community to want to commit our lives to sort of positive change uh james are there any sort of of Jewish thinkers that you have been influenced by? Because I know that you've got a lot of Jewish friends who sort of have taken you on uh, as a sort of honorary Jew in your on occasion, uh, yes. various sort of uh, parts of your life. Well, one of the fascinating things about my congregation, the tradition we're part of, is that it actually grew out of Judaism. About 145 years ago, that was founded by the son of a prominent New York rabbi who started to read a lot of philosophy and religious texts and then came to believe that there needed to be one place or temple where everyone could come whether they were jewish or not and he wanted to make judaism into sort of a universal religion that was for everyone not just for one particular ethnic or religious group and his father's temple did not like that idea they wanted to hold on to the specific identity of Judaism as they understood it. And so he went off to make the new thing that became us. Um, so we do have these interesting historic roots with Judaism. And what, there's a wonderful Jewish congregation round the corner from my house in St. Louis, which I love going to for all their events. And one of the things in terms of spiritual practices that I really appreciate is they're singing all the time, that particularly the singing of Nigun, which are sort of songs it's not exactly without words, but it's it's kind of syllables that repeated syllables and phrases. And I love singing that music. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, that feeling, I've always been a singer, and that feeling of getting your body involved with lots of other people in that rhythmic way, that brings out a lot of spiritual energy for me. Hmm. Yeah, melodies in a frequently minor key. Yes, right. So all of this poignant, sad, um, many of them coming from perhaps Eastern Europe, um, where people were sad. They, they had a lot of hard, Jews in Eastern Europe had a lot of hardship um, during the 19th century, for example. 
Um, so yes, yeah, singing is very much um, a part of uh, many services. Yes. There's a uh, uh, someone who came and interned at uh, Sunday Assembly, and he was an evangelical Christian from Holland, and both of his parents were atheists. And so that's a very rare for people to go and make that switch, particularly in Holland. And he said that there's uh, this interesting theology of like, I think it's maybe like C minor or something like that, which is like the God chord, they call it, that when it's played in sort of religious services, that's something which goes and gets people to have these spiritual experiences. And then obviously it's quite controversial, theologically speaking, because, you know, one earth is God waiting for some, you know, some musician with long hair and sort of big crucifix tattoos, low cut V-neck t-shirt and big chunky uh, Christian rock band chains to play a chord. <laughs> before visiting uh, before visiting people but there is uh yeah it really goes and uh sets off these sorts of connections one thing when you were speaking about uh the niguns is that uh, and for our uh listeners who haven't heard of this well you will have undoubt you already know a nigun uh have a nagila was originally a nigun have a nagila have a, and then it got words put to it later on uh, one thing I didn't realize was that the Hasidic Jews actually started off as a really progressive uh, type of Judaism, where it was sort of based around singing and it was based around dancing and it was based around like rhythmic practices, which got and got, went and got you in touch with the divine because they thought that too much of Judaism had become very sort of text based and, you know, unfortunately, very book based for uh, uh, this podcast, which has been very pro book up until right now. Uh, but uh, yeah, and the, in fact, they, they were like, like, no, we're just going to sing and we're going to dance and we're going to go and connect to this. And yet, weirdly, that has now become a very regimented, like you say, very patriarchal, very systematized way of connecting with God. So there's most definitely wasn't a question after that. But uh, uh, it was a couple of things which just sprung to mind. I, I have a question about, about the future of, of all this, because now you're working with Conscious Cafe, which is a nonprofit, and it says on, on, on its website, a friendly and welcoming community, a place to live consciously, which is exactly what my congregation hopes to be as well. So there's lots of overlap there. And I'm wondering what you think the next phase of development and spiritual growth or have whatever language you want to use to describe this area what the next thing is because you have a track record of identifying you know authors who who you gave a market to who had an idea that hadn't been seen what would be your guess as to what's coming next in that sort of area um well i think you're there with your organization <laughs> sound bite yeah um you know um Many wars are fought because people have different religions and younger people coming onto the coming into the world are not looking at a very happy world which they're going to grow up in and they can perfectly reasonably blame their parents um, and say, well, you know, um, you, like, look what a mess 
look at the problems on the world. Look at all the, look at all the countries that are at war. Um, look at all the inequality. Um, there is so, I mean, look, look at all the pain actually. Um, how many people in how many countries are sort of very high on the happiness index? Um, it, it's, 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 we haven't left younger people a world that is easy for them to live in. Um, people are always talking about being kind, but really we shouldn't have to be talking about it because in an ideal world, we'd all be being kind to one another automatically, or at least a lot more of the time than we are. Um, so um, I think people are going to turn towards spirituality and they're going to explore all different aspects of it. So if you go into a beautiful bookshop and you go and look at the spiritual shelves, you're going to see all kinds of different subject areas within those shelves. And I think people will begin to start with one subject, go on to another one, and everybody's drawn to something different. So a lot of people are going to want to work with the body. Um, so there are all kinds of healing modalities with the body. People want to work with the mind. People want to work with integrating them. Um, and people just want to be better human beings, whether within a religious framework um, which I think they're going perhaps to reject because it is very structured and can be patriarchal sometimes. Um, and I think they are just going to want to believe in something much bigger um, and better than they've already been introduced to. What a wonderful place to end. Judy, I just want to thank you for your time. Uh, we started off in Daniel Steele, Danielle Steele, and uh, Teenage Fumblings in, uh, in Buckinghamshire. And we've ended up back there somehow just by me mentioning it. But I want to say it's been such a great time uh, interviewing you. So fascinating on so many areas. Like for us, like, you know, these insights into how to communicate, how to talk about these things. And, you know, the fact that these aren't Obtruse, and I'm just repeating what people who've listened to this will already be thinking. But I just want to say thanks so much. And we're going to go and big up your book, which is available in all good bookstores, which is underneath here in the links. So thank you so much, Judy. Oh, thank you for inviting me to have this lovely conversation with you. Um, and thank you for asking such thoughtful questions. There we go, James. Uh, so that was uh, fascinating speaking to her. I, I think one of the things which I really take from it is again, this like trying to go and make things simple, which when dealing with this stuff can be really hard because you are dealing with concepts which are new and different. And so how on earth do you go and speak about that? And yet at the same time, not get lost in, um, you know, phrases and terminology and jargon, which go and keep things inaccessible. I mean, I think that that's just something I'm always really aware of, but you know, we're called the lifefulness project. And that's just like, oh, well, yeah, it's, this is a word. You can't have mindfulness without the word mindfulness. Uh, but until people know what the word mindfulness is, what on earth is that? And so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I thought it was so interesting how Judy spoke about that simple decision to change the title of John Kabat-Zinn's first book from something that was 
vague and evocative to something that's much more direct and down to earth. Like this is what this book is about. And she talked about it in terms of fitting the UK book market at the time. But I think that it's worth thinking about how ideas spread, how you can make them accessible. And it's difficult. I, I often think, oh, I like to tell a story. I like to kind of titillate people. And very often people just want to be like, well, what's the idea? Just tell me what it is in a very simple way. Mm. So I think that I, I learned from her to think a little bit more carefully about how do you communicate these big ideas to different audiences? That was very valuable. Yeah, it's uh, it's also wonderful to go meet someone who has been doing this for uh, quite some time, actually, and sort of really putting it into practice in her company. That it's again not this is not just sort of stuff that you uh, go and apply in your own life or just absorb, but it can be a way of running a company and actually running a company really well. I wonder if she was a she was, a, I always get run that, like, if she was a man, would there be more people who would be talking about her? The answer to that question is normally yes. Yes, almost certainly. And also publishing on subjects which are more, like, acceptable and men read these. That is what I was going to say. I think one of the things that I absolutely loved about the story of her career that she shared was her willingness to champion books, genres, topics that were a little outside the elite culture at the time, and also were things that generally, and she's spoken about this in some other interviews, were things that um, women tended to read rather than men, and being a champion for books that will be of interest to women. I think that that's great, and, and I think that it's wonderful to see someone who made a success out of not exactly, you know, not pugnaciously thumbing their nose at conventional wisdom, but saying, no, I'm passionate about this content. I think there's an audience for it. And I'm going to pursue that audience and showing everyone that that audience is enormous. What an inspiring story. So this is the outro to the podcast where I normally talk about what is going on in the life on this world. And I think the last one was super excited and super exciting. And this one is very different in uh, tone because this week has been really, really hard. Uh, we were putting together a grant for that, like a really cool project, working with some great partners. And then for reasons inside and outside my control, we weren't able to submit it. But when it happened and we missed that deadline, boy, did I get triggered? Yes, I did. I was just sort of just knocked sideways in such a huge way, like this grant being like a signal of everything that I do and everything I can't do and all of these unhelpful thought patterns being brought up and then connecting to what feels like a lifetime of of failure in this area and it then when connecting with that and just feeling really really sad and like on the verge of tears at times because with that feeling of like if i i'm doing all this stuff i'm really 
you know, doing the work, like living my life this way. And yet there's these like really deep drivers, which are so hard to change. And, you know, there's an interaction between ADHD and sort of then, you know, sort of like personal, I feel hesitant to like and use the word trauma because, but traumatic experiences certainly. Uh, and yeah, so it's just been really full on. Uh, and it's it's hard, it's super hard to go and share this. I think in the interview with Dan Snow, it was talking about how tricky it is to be be a leader and then to speak about anxiety and speak about the difficulties I have because then it's not even as often. For some reason, I always imagine investors because you know, as a or funders hearing this, like oh god, this guy. Uh, but it's also for people who are involved in the community. Like I, you know, how much to go and let people in, how much to tell people. I've always been sort of pretty open and honest and and I try to be, but it, like around these things, it is just so hard. And and I, I, I think to, there's this one podcast I love, John Robbins and Ellis James. And John Robbins, he speaks about the difficulties he has and you know the i find it incredibly comforting like sometimes i'm like oh holy shit i don't do that well chill out mate uh and uh i just hope that this is also comforting to other people you know whether for whatever reason it might be like the pandemic is doing things to us life is doing things to us you know we've all got our backgrounds and histories and whatever it might be uh that like it's normal for things to be difficult and you know now I'm feeling uh a lot better and all of these things but uh yeah it was it was a tricky tricky week I also think that like this should be a place for positivity and optimism and we can do this and and I believe all of those things I I, I believe that, that life is good that it is fundamentally uh, that I am good that all of this stuff it can be you know they can be true at the same time uh, and that, you know, life can still be incredible even though it is hard. So, yeah, that is, that's been a big part of my week. So, anyway, uh, just wanted to share it with you. And then, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. So, uh, thanks to James, my wonderful co host. Thanks to Mavs for editing this. Thanks to Roman Rapak and Mira Shot, who made the music that you're listening to right now.